This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and educational purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Agios. Doctors Amar Zaidi and Mike Callahan are employees of Agios Pharmaceuticals. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C. It's been a really long time, man. I feel rusty. Too long. We've been slacking. We got to get back at it. Get more Cheat Codes episodes out. I hear you, man. I hear you. But uh, we'll make up for time today. Yeah. Yeah, we lined up a nice guest. We'll talk a little bit about sickle cell disease in a country that's not too far from us, man. It's actually home for me. And still a country that sickle cell disease doesn't get the attention it needs to. For sure. I mean, I think that's true in every country. But when I think of Canada, I think of snow and Labatt and hockey. Sickle cell doesn't come top of mind, but we know there's a lot of warriors up there. And thank goodness they have an advocate and champion up there working for them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to jump into this episode. So let's get there. Let's do it. Dr. Mike, it has been quite some time since I have been with you in the recording studio. It's been way too long, Dr. Z. It's good to be back. How have you been, my friend? I've been good. How have you been? I've been living my best life. I'm getting to meet all sorts of people from all over the world that are making a difference in sickle cell disease. That's awesome. And I know you recently got back to your homeland. I did. And it felt really good to not only get back to Canada, but... Also to find my tribe a little bit out there, right? To find people who care about issues that are very meaningful to me. And I'm really happy that we were able to turn that visit into a Cheat Codes episode. Yeah, I'm excited about this. Yeah, because really, Canada, though it's a Western country and is not impoverished, sickle cell therapies in Canada, sickle cell, the attention for sickle cell in Canada is a little bit lagging behind. Yeah, I have to admit, when I think Canada, I don't think sickle cell, but maybe this podcast will change that. Yeah, and there's people, luckily, that are really working hard to make that change happen in Canada. And one of the major players for sickle cell advocacy in Canada is in the studio with us today. Welcome, Biba Tinga. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you. So, Biba, for the rare sickle cell warrior that's out there who may not have heard about your work, tell us a little bit about... Number one, what your title is, and number two, what that means. Thanks for having me today. Before I answer that question, I would like to acknowledge that today is September 30th, and September 30th is National Day and Truth Reconciliation Day in Canada, which also built up an orange shirt day. So I would like to pay respect to the Canadian care people on whose traditional and unceded territory I live and work. Beautiful. Yes. So Dr. Z, to tell you about my title, I am the president and executive director of the Sickle Cell Disease Association of Canada, which is the the national umbrella for sickle cell disease in Canada. I'm also a warrior mom. I'm a parent of an adult living with sickle cell disease. So that's who I am. For our organization, we, SCDAC, Sickle Cell Disease Association of Canada, which is also Association d'Animifacy Forum du Canada, had been funded just 10 years ago in October, we're going to turn 10. So we're pretty young, but we work with provincial organization that has been around for a longer time. And it was um, established to increase awareness about sickle cell disease in Canada, to enhance like method of identification and treatment, and also to support the sickle cell community. A small community, but a growing community. 
we have about 6,500 people living with sickle cell disease here. Wow. So that's who we serve. It's really hard to, after seeing you in action recently, I think it's very hard to fully describe the work you're doing for the sickle cell community across all of the provinces and territories of Canada. And I think my understanding of the organizations in the different provinces and how they come under this umbrella together was lacking. So you really taught me something about how advocacy looks there. So you're saying we have 6,000 patients. I want to hear more about these patients. Are they concentrated in certain areas in the country? So the 6,000 person, actually, it's just an estimate. And do you know why? Because we don't have a registry for sickle cell disease. So we don't have the exact number, but we were able to evaluate, you know, talking to the healthcare providers and also with the information we have as patient group, we're able to determine that we have about 6,000 or going, growing to 6,005 now. And the majority of them are in two provinces, Quebec and Ontario. And then the rest of them are in Alberta, BC. We have a few in provinces like Saskatchewan, they have a very small number of patients there. And that's, that's how the repartition is. And uh, I like to call it, they are living in areas where they can find care, right? So, so they have to stay close to these healthcare centers and we call them healthcare prison cages. Because if you travel anywhere else, you might not find a physician who can treat sickle cell. This concentration is not just determined by, by, by choice, it's determined by the fact that access to care. That's very interesting. That That's probably quite limiting. It's another limiting factor, right? And being able to find sort of a place to live, a place to work, to have to think about sickle cell disease in that aspect of where can I find good sickle cell care is probably really interferes with your ability to do things. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, patients, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. Your ability to travel, your ability to live your life. Hands-on, when we moved to Canada, one of the first time I realized that there was an issue with that is when my son was going to college and he wanted to move. We live in Quebec. He wanted to go to a school in Sudbury, Ontario. And we started looking for a physician and there was none. Not one physician who agreed to take his care, take him under wow. his care. So what we had to do, he ended up going, but we just find a place where he can go for his blood test and then send them back to his physician in Quebec to make sure that if there was anything, he has to travel back to Montreal for his care and go back. And that's when he realized, not in Canada, not in Northern America, how can we have this kind of healthcare system? But we do for sickle cell. I was going to say, we think of Canada as having such organized healthcare system, universal care, universal coverage, and we have lots of access issues and challenges in the U.S. But I think as with Many things about sickle cell, e even in a place like that, there's a huge disparity and a problem with access. Yes. And that's what we always point out every time when we compare ourselves to U.S. We said, 
it's the same disease, same population. And how come we don't have access to the same thing? Let me tell you about the care in Canada. For the past 40 years, our community has been left with just supportive care. And what we call supportive care is that hydroxyurea and blood transfusion or blood exchange. That's what we have access. Those new drugs specifically dedicated to sickle cell are not available here. Even though we do have universal healthcare system, what they're trying to do is keep the care as, how do I say, low cost as possible. So those drugs are considered as being very expensive and it takes time. And that's where our work becomes more important to advocate for this community and to let them know that we need a basket of choices to treat sickle cell. We cannot continue to work with just those two treatment options. One size fits all does not work for sickle cell disease. I'm sure you will agree with me, Dr. Z. Absolutely. That sickle cell is unpredictable and then every individual is affected differently. So how can we just be left with hydroxyurea and blood transfusions? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Another sort of thought that comes to me is you've seen sickle cell disease in a lot of different contexts, right? We talked a little bit right now about North America, but your story with sickle cell disease didn't start in Montreal. No. Your story with sickle cell disease started way before that. I yeah. feel like we've neglected your whole story before you got to Canada. So tell us a little bit about the origin of your, where does your story with sickle cell disease actually begin? Yeah. So as I said before, I am, I'm the mother of an adult who is now an adult. So we come from sub-Saharan Africa, a country called Niger. So when my son was born, and this was over 30 years ago, there was no newborn screening there. And there's still, there is still not any newborn screening happening there in Niger at this time. And I remember that I always think, and this is one of the residual trauma that I still have to this day. When he was about, he first, his first crisis was at seven months old. But before that, a couple of months or weeks before that, this little boy would just scream and like, it wasn't crying, it was a scream for no reason. And nothing could calm him down. He will carry him on my back, my shoulders. He will go from my hand to my mom, to my sisters, but nothing. And there was no signs, no fever, no broken bone. So we didn't know what was wrong with him. And it's only when the crisis occurred and the crisis, he had fever and we knew to take him to the hospital. But the first thing they did was give us a treatment for malaria and send us back home for two weeks. So I remember because I've been recording everything and writing everything from the first crisis that happened when he was seven months old. We really had the diagnosis when he was a year old or a few months after that. So it took, to me, it's a long time as anything can happen within this time. So when they tested and we had to go back and then they realized, okay, the hand were swollen and the eye were yellow. They said, okay, maybe it's, it's something more serious. So they send us to the main hospital and that's how we got the sickle cell diagnosis. But at the time, it was not a sickle cell diagnosis that was handed to us, it was a death sentence. They will tell you, he has sickle cell disease, but this child might not live. If you're lucky, maybe he will live to be five, but not more than that. So that's what we were given at the time. And I always say that I think this child survived because he's resilient as any other sickle cell warrior, but also because I was young. I was very young when I had my child and I just couldn't accept, accept what was being said by the healthcare providers and by all the adults around me, as a matter of fact, and they will just tell you that, okay, you take the child home, take care of the child. We do the best we can. And then if he lives, he lives. And when he dies, he dies. I was young and I was going to school and that was a good thing. I was going to college. I was in my first year of college. So I started educating myself. 
I remember I had friends in med school and the first thing I did, I went to them because I couldn't talk to nobody else. So I, I went to them because there was, there were no patient group that I can go to for information. So I went to them and asked them, tell me more about this disease. And even though they were telling me he's going to die, just so you know, but we'll give you our notes for you to read, to know how it's going to happen to him. So I was able to read. They had books. I could understand some of the medical terms, but I just went through it to understand what I could do. And one of the first thing I got is that discipline has to be part of our life for them because they tell if he has fever, if he's crying, if he's not eating, take him to the hospital right away. He might need blood and he's in pain. It's very painful. So he needs medication that you don't have at home to give him. So that's how I started going, you know, not missing any doctor's appointment. So it, that's how our journey started. And uh, one, of the one of the first thing, Dr. Z, when now we call ourselves a patient advocate, we are advocate. I didn't know at the time that, I didn't know all those terms, but one thing I knew I was a mom and I knew that I was totally responsible for this child care and I had to do everything in my power to, give, to keep him alive. And I remember after a couple of crises, maybe two or three, the head nurse came to me and she said, okay, I think we know which type of crisis your son is going to have. The most frequent one is going to be that he's going to be sick. You're going to bring him, but he's going to need blood. I said, okay. She goes, there is a, just a problem. Sometimes, because sickle cell can happen anytime, it's unpredictable. We might not have the blood he needs. So here is what we do with parents who have kids like yours. You're going to go into your community, your family, anywhere you can, and get people, regardless of their blood types, to come and donate blood. And in exchange, the blood bank at the hospital will always have blood for your son. So that means it was like a truck, like an exchange. You bring blood two pouches and we make sure that we have the equivalents for your son. And if he's in crisis, then that will save his life. So at the time I, I was going into a community where there were so many barriers to blood donations, right? It was religious. It was cultural. They didn't want to believe there was, they were also afraid of needles sometimes simply, but it's for me to convince them to donate blood. I had to know what to tell them to convince them. I had to know the disease and tell them how painful it was how it was impacted my child's quality of life and how I can lose him anytime so that I can convince them to walk through those doors and donate blood. So that's how our journey started, Dr. C. Wow, that's amazing. Sounds so scary. Did people know about sickle cell? Had you, did you know people who had sickle cell before, before your son was diagnosed or did people talk about sickle cell? When you talk to people about sickle cell, were they open to talking about it? Did they know other people? Did they say, okay, I can donate blood for that? Or is it stigmatized? The stigma is, was huge and is still present to these days. And now that you say it, I, I'm trying to think, I think my son was the first person with sickle cell disease that I've met in my life. He was the first I heard about it. We, everybody knows about sickle cell in Africa, but nobody get, gets tested. And because people do not live longer, we don't even have, I won't say opportunity, a chance to see really how it is for us to be aware of the disease. I think I remember when I was growing up, there was one, one, one single person who was very public about the condition and she was talking about it because she was known all over the city that for having sickle cell. And I believe she died at the age of 33. And to this day, she's one of the most famous patients that we know in Niger. So no, they were not talking about it. And this is one of the funny things that I couldn't understand because every Wednesday afternoon, where just 
consultation days for sickle cell patients. So there was only one pediatrician in the hospital. So we were all to come there. So we were sitting on that bench from 1 p.m. to till 6 p.m. where he would see every single patient. And as I said, I was there every Wednesday, regardless of his health, if he was sick or not, because I wanted to understand. And he said, you come every Wednesday. So I was going. But the mother sitting next to me will never talk about it. Sometimes you would see one with a child or even two. And then after a few weeks, they will start coming with only one. Or sometimes you will stop seeing a mother and you will understand that maybe the child is gone. But there was no conversation between us. We are not talking about it because oh, wow, it's a disease, powerful. right? It's a condition. Right. Nobody wants to be loved and has a parent has given that uh, condition to their kids. And I don't know for a certain reason, we are just not talking about it. Wow. So that makes me curious because that's obviously very different. The way advocacy is approached here is very much a community-based advocacy that's very open communication, patients empowering patients. But you have such a unique experience in that you started your advocacy journey in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Niger, and then came over here. Do you think that made you a better advocate here? If you didn't have the experience, would that have made your advocacy here a little bit less effective? I think one of the things that even made me start advocating for sickle cell disease here in Canada, it was the, my previous experience. It was, an, it was just a shock to me when we moved to Canada. One of the first things that was, it was a good thing because pain management was different. So we went from him always being sick and having painful crises and being in the hospital and then here they could re really quickly control the pain and then he stopped crying and when he stopped crying i stopped crying and when i stopped crying so our quality of life changed and then there was hope for me to say okay this child can have a, a pain free life and he can be like any other child so it will improve the quality of life and then when we moved to canada he had about a three years growth delay and they fixed that with blood transfusion so they put him on a transfusion program and this child just grew like a mushroom. So I was like, wow, so we are here in heaven and then he's going to be fine. But then as he starts growing, then I start seeing that there were a lot of things missing here too. The blood transfusion did help him grow up and you know, have less pain crisis. And then when the iron overload came at the time, there was nothing they could do about it. Then they start talking about the fact that there was these clinical trials going at the time for exceed and they were trying to find solution. We have to maybe slow down on the transfusion because that can create organ damage. And then I start realizing that patients were also struggling with so many other things because he was to go to school, he was to come for his blood exchange. And in Africa, I had the community to support, I had people to help, to pick up, to help me, but here we were alone. And then you realize the system doesn't provide anything else for you. So you have to sit, to, to care for your child and to create all the support system that he needs. So that's when I start going to the Quebec group and meeting all the parents, talking to them, and they start complaining and telling us how it was difficult for them to maintain a job, to also care for the child in predictable crisis and spending a lot of time in the ER. And then I start meeting all the patients talking about you know, that they don't believe. So my son was about 15, so we were also going through preparing for transition. Then I start hearing all these horror stories that they were telling me about when they become an adult, they go for understanding to less understanding. So the supportive care, there is less supportive care when you become an adult. And I was like, so how is this gonna look for him? 
So that's when I stepped into. So uh, regardless of the place you live in this world, when you look at it globally, there is an issue with the care that is provided to sickle cell patients. So yes, in Africa, in Niger, there was no like proper pain management protocol. There was no patient group to, for the support. There was no network for me to rely on. And I like to describe how the physicians are so busy with so many patients overwhelmed that also because of the community that they are dealing with, they don't take the time to explain to you. They will look at the patient, give you the prescription and send you home. Here, maybe you have a conversation. They will explain to you what to expect, what's coming on. But at the same time, that's all they can do. That's just the same supportive care. At the end of the day, we did not have hydroxyurea. We had the blood. And then I came to Canada and I realized we only have blood and hydroxyurea. Then I'm like, I'm in one of the most developed countries in the world. It can't be that the care that's going to be offered to my child is comparable to the one in Niger and one of the poorest countries in the world. Right, right. So that's when I realized that there is a lot of work that is, has to be done and you can't just sit back and look and wait for somebody to do it. This work has to be done by us. You mentioned you were meeting with other parents and was there a sickle cell disease association or did you have to build that or both? Yeah, there was one here. So in Montreal, where I live in Quebec, there's this dad, he lost his son in 1999 and that's when he created the Quebec group. As a matter of fact, I was working with and I became the vice president of the Quebec group. And when the national organization was created in 2012, I was sent there to represent Quebec because I was one of the only bilingual parents on the board. And then that's how I became the vice president of the of ACDAC from 2014 to 2017. And in November 2017, I became the president when the first president resigned. There was a patient group and that's, that was the first time in my life that I could sit with another parent and we start talking about our experience, the impact of the disease on us caregivers and the family, our careers, our life in general, the relationship we had with our friends, if they don't know how to help you, if they don't know how to support you, where sometimes they don't do it and you feel like they're letting you down. That was the first time and I had it only like my son was 16, almost going on 17 when I was for the first time I could sit with another parent and relate and say, yes, that's exactly how I feel. There's so much hope in your story, but there's also quite a bit of heartbreak in that there's no matter where you are with sickle cell disease, the need for advocacy will always be there. There will always be a need for champions. And honestly, there's always going to be a need for mothers for patients with sickle cell disease. It's it's just a different, one of the most special things I have seen in my life is the way that a mother of a child with sickle cell disease advocates. There's nothing better. There's nobody better who can tell the story. I just want to take a minute to just acknowledge you as not just the president of this national organization, but just as a mother of a child with sickle cell disease, thank you for advocating for your son and for the kids of so many others. Really, I mean, it's heroic. Your story, you get so much put on your plate, so many challenges, and instead of letting that beat you down, you take it and make something better for other people and try to make it easier for other people. Really, that's a hero story. And we've been yeah. fortunate to talk to a handful of people who took a similar course, but I, I think normal to just be crushed by all the weight of that, but to lift it up and then use it to help other people is amazing. So thank you. Thank you. You know, there are two things that I always share. 
The first one happened with my son in 2009. When he graduated, he came back and from Ontario and he was looking for an internship. And I said, okay, so because you're doing well, he was on hydroxyurea at the time, you don't have any crisis and you want to go back to Niger to see your grandparents. So why not go and have your internship there at the hospital? Because he's a pharmacy technician. I said, okay. So it was a good opportunity for him to visit the family and do that. So he did that. He went for a month, I believe, in 2009. And when he came back, he told me, he said, oh, I visited the hospital where I, they used to treat me. I went to the pediatric ward and the doctor, I don't know if you remember him seeing his pediatrician, but he said, I saw the herd nurse. It's the same one who was there when I was, I used to work a couple of years ago. And she remembered me, she remembers me. And we went for a walk and I look and, and then he said to me, oh, but you know what, mom? I asked her about a couple of my friends and I don't remember their names now. And she said that they were all gone. And I was like, I was listening to him. And all this time, it was the first time that as a mom, I just stood there as sad as the situation was. Then I realized, okay, I did something good. I was on the right path of doing the right thing for this child. And the second thing is that one day in one of the Christmas party here in Quebec, I was talking to a mom whose child was born in Canada and raised in Canada. And she asked me, she said, but Biba, why don't you cry? Because most caregivers, we're always crying. The minute we're sharing the experience, we're crying. But I don't, I do not cry. And I did not realize that I wasn't crying. She said, because every time I look at you, you look so strong, you're sharing your story. And it took me a while to understand why. It's because as a parent coming from Niger to coming to Canada and doing all that and seeing how my son was doing better, was growing up, was not going to have a career was looking and we're still, even though we're, we don't have a cure, we don't have many treatment options, but I knew he was doing better. I knew that I had done my best. And I also understood that it wasn't about me as a caregiver at the time. I said, I have to look at the bigger perspective. How can our experience help somebody else who is going through the same thing? So I have to sit and tell them, don't sit there and be sad about yourself or cry all the day. It's not going to help your child. Educate yourself, become an advocate, collaborate with the healthcare providers. You're lucky you're here. You have access to so many options to work with that. What's best for you? And then also have a voice for your child when they cannot you know, advocate for themselves. Yes, thank you for all these kind words, but it took all these years. As I said, my son is over 30 years old now and I'm still making mistakes sometimes. We still argue now. Now I'm no longer a caregiver, but I'm a consultant in his life. But every time I go to any meeting and I come back and I heard about the clinical trials and news, then I just have to tell him, you have to sit and listen to what's coming. So are you sure you can be a good candidate? Are you taking good care of yourself? Are you protecting your organs so that if there is this new drug, this new treatment option, it can be good for you. So now at this stage, it's about just being ready, being prepared for what's coming for the sickle cell community, because there is hope. You sound like a really good consultant. Yes, I am. I am a consultant for this care. And we have so many partners, right? The healthcare providers are our partners, allies, and of course, our policymakers, because if you want to bring the drugs to Canada, we have to work with them and the community itself. We have to stand up and advocate for ourselves. Absolutely. Speaking of representing communities and communities largely and making sure everyone's included, me and you had a long conversation about ensuring that when we're in Canada, we respect that people speak English, but people also speak French. French, yes. I would love for you to share with our French warriors a few words 
about how they can involve themselves if they don't know with the national organization and the local organization in their province. Merci beaucoup, Dr. V. Uh, C'est une belle opportunité. Pour... Alors, ce que je vous invite à faire, si vous êtes au Québec ou dans une province quelconque, si vous parlez français ou anglais, joignez-vous toujours à une organisation de patients. Et ensuite, vous pouvez toujours venir être des volontaires à l'Association nationale, Association d'Anémie Fartifonde du Canada. Cherchez-nous sur notre site Internet ou sur Facebook ou sur Instagram et connectez-vous. On est toujours en train de chercher des volontaires pour pousser plus loin la cause au Canada. Merci beaucoup. So, indeed, as a matter of fact, French, I would say it's my first language. French is my third language. Then English is my fourth language. So, of course, because I speak African, my, my, my native languages, two of them, then French was the third language I learned, and then English came last. So, thanks for the opportunity to speak. <laughs> What is the predominant language in Niger? Is it Hausa? Yes. Oh, how do you know that? A little bit we know, right? We study a lot about Nigeria, Sub-Saharan Africa, Niger, right? So you get a sense. But there's, I don't know, Absolutely. after Hausa, I don't know the second language, though. Yes, there is Zalma and Hausa, and I speak both. So you see, uh, Niger and Nigeria, we are like brothers and sisters. We are neighboring countries. And the majority of the people affected by sickle cell disease in Africa are in Nigeria, are from Nigeria. And Northern Nigeria is the same population that we have in Niger, the Hausa. So right. that's why we speak the same language. We can communicate. Just colonization came and just put a border and said, this is Niger, this is Nigeria. But we, don't, we do understand each other. It's the same community. So that's why we, we all speak Hausa. And if also, if you go up in Cameroon, we have the, the, the same population. And in Niger, we have now Zarma, and I speak both languages. Amazing. Biba, you continue to impress me every time I meet you and talk to you. I, I leave that conversation better. So thank you again for sharing your story and your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to continuing to work again with you because you are one of the doctors advocates that we love to have around in the community. So keep doing what you do and thanks for your time. Wonderful. You know, like I said in our interview with Biba, I, uh, I always leave conversations with her with new knowledge, with new perspective. And I'm glad that you got to experience some of that today. Yeah, no, she's amazing. To hear her story coming from Niger, challenges of having young child with sickle cell and navigating all of that and taking that and making something positive out of it and helping other people. It's really inspiring story. Yeah, I, I had followed her for quite some time, and obviously she's an advocate extraordinaire. But the chance to see her in action at the recent Sickle Cell Association of Ontario conference, there's something spectacular about what they're building in Canada, honestly, in the advocacy space. The way the national organization is ensuring that provincially sickle cell patients are being represented fairly and equitably is it's quite impressive, honestly. And I'm, I'm just happy that we are getting a chance to experience not only the advocacy space in Canada, but meeting some of these really good hematologists that are in Canada taking care of sickle cell patients, advocating as well. Definitely. And I think we've had far too little French on the podcast, so it was wonderful to hear anemi falciform. And I, you know, 
10, 10 years of high school and college French. I picked up a tiny bit of what she said, but it's nice. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's, it is always nice to diversify a little bit. But uh, you know what? We're going to have to go visit Biba in Montreal at some point, and maybe we'll come back with a little bit more French. Absolutely. All right, Dr. C. Well, listen, Cheat Codes listeners, how does this go, Dr. C? I haven't done this in so long. I don't even know how to close the episode out. Wow. <laughs> Guess we'll just have to keep going. I think what we need to do is we need to remind people to share this episode. Absolutely. With somebody who they think could benefit from what they heard and make sure that they follow us. Me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And me at Imagineer. Awesome. And with that, keep living well with Sickle Cell. We'll catch you next time, Warriors. Peace. Peace.